Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, Agora Podcast family. This is Dr. Gary Chahot. You might know me as the host of the French History Podcast, the show that tells the history of France from three million years ago to present. What you might not know is that I am also a fiction author. Two years ago, my debut novel, The Maiden Voyage of New York City, was published, telling the story of a future post-flood NYC floating on the waves and the conspiracy to bring it down. Last month, my second novel, The Afghan Wedding, came out and tells the bizarre, darkly comedic story of Avisa Fatah, a young woman from the desert of death in western Afghanistan, whose wedding night is interrupted by a sudden firefight that ends with her disappearing and reappearing at a secretive U.S. military base at the South Pole. If you want to support indie fiction and my bizarre stories sound appealing to you, please check them out. Now, enjoy the show. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Lawrence Waring. Lawrence was an officer and a drinking companion of Johann Banner, and he provided him with a fine vintage, which that Swede enjoyed during his rare times of leisure. Axel Oxenstierna thanks you for your service, Lawrence Waring. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or the link in the description below. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to episode 65 of the 30 Years War. So, in the last episode, we watched several pieces of the puzzle fall into place, and not very gracefully. The war was unquestionably starting to widen, and as it did so, Emperor Ferdinand II, a stalwart part of the conflict since its beginning, died at the age of 59. His son, Ferdinand III, was prepared to pick up the baton, but... He was not prepared, as we learned, to listen to the same counsel, and he surely imagined he would avoid making the same mistakes as his father. And Ferdinand II had made many mistakes, the consequences of which the son had surely inherited. War remained a constant staple as 1637 progressed, with no end in sight. So today, we're going to examine the differing threads of the late 1630s, as the military and political situation looms into view for the Habsburgs. Unfortunately for the newly crowned emperor, the view was not particularly impressive, nor was it very reassuring. A worrying trend was making itself felt. 
The empire was running out of men, the dynasty was running out of money, and God himself appeared to be running out of patience. There remained little in the way of tonics for these problems, save for a closer cooperation with the Spanish, for better or worse, until the bitter end. Without any further ado then, I'll now take you to spring 1637, when the newly crowned emperor faced down the full weight of his inheritance. Emperor Ferdinand III was just 29 when he ascended to the imperial throne, and the mission which lay in front of him was as formidable as it was complicated. After 20 years of war, few in Europe genuinely wished to see it continue, but fewer still were willing to give way, so long as they held a position of some significance. Ferdinand knew that the balance of power was beginning to count against Vienna, or at least balance itself out, now that France had placed itself firmly in the enemy camp. However, with the arrival of France, potentially, came the opportunity to mobilise all of Germany against that traditional foe. What was needed was a coordinated campaign of attack for the late 1630s, which would compromise French security, remove Sweden from Pomerania, weaken the Dutch for Spain, and confirm German solidarity. As Ferdinand was to learn, these tasks were not merely difficult, they were also interdependent and connected. There were now several fronts which Madrid and Vienna would have to concern themselves with. In the northeast of Germany, Johann Banner's Swedish army was quartered, having bought itself some time after the victory at Wittstock the previous October in 1636. Opposing Johann Banner were mostly Saxon and Brandenburg troops, though these were increasingly desperate for imperial reinforcement since that Battle of Wittstock. To the northwest, in Westphalia, the rebellious German figure, William of Hesse-Castle, led opposition to the Emperor, and was also in touch with France. He faced down the forces of Germans, loyal to the Emperor, who were led interchangeably by the Saxons, and by Octavio Piccolomini. Above them, in the Netherlands, if you can figure out this mind map, the Dutch continued to batter away at the Spanish, which hampered the latter's ability to contribute much in the northern theatres, but further to the south along the Rhine, the Spanish were more active. First, there was that army under the aforementioned Piccolomini, who commanded near Picardy following the invasion of France the previous year. Second, further to the south, the status of Alsace and Lorraine plagued the French court, and provided great opportunities for the Spanish and Imperials. Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar, the former Swedish-turned-French subject, led a motley crew in that region, and was opposed by the Imperial General and former subordinate of Wallenstein, Matthias Gallus. Gallus was himself supported by Duke Charles of Lorraine, but above all by the nearby Bavarians, and a very nervous Maximilian of Bavaria, who looked on out of fear that the French might spill across the Rhine, and fight into his lands. Back in Madrid, Count Olivares may have intended to retry the ambitious campaigns of 1636, but 1637 was to deny him the chance. The fall of the fortress town of Breda in October 1637 moved imperial and Spanish forces away from French territory. The Swedish resurgence forced Matthias Gallus to send troops away from the Rhine and into Saxony, Piccolomini, following Spanish pleas, quartered in nearby Luxembourg and watched the Spanish defences, effectively occupying his army of 12,000 men until late 1639. 
The need to plug leaks in struggling theatres was a constant drain on the resources of Vienna and Madrid, and Ferdinand was growing restless for another reason. Spain had failed to provide the subsidy it had promised, and as a result, the emperor didn't feel compelled to make any supreme effort in 1637, even if he'd been in a position to, which he had not been. It was immensely difficult to take stock of the situation at the different theatres, and more difficult still to coordinate between them. Bear in mind, we're looking at this in the benefit of hindsight, and you have to think of these situations and theatres relying on the then strained and often corruptible postal service to boot. The ravaging of German lands seriously hampered the delivery of posts, and it also seems to have reduced the number of men which recruiters could traditionally support. The days of Wallenstein commandeering more than 100,000 souls were long gone. Barely five years on from those record highs of recruitment, the emperor could scarcely boast half that number of effectives, and that was being generous. This reduction in soldiers didn't result in a reduction in stakes. In fact, it made the Habsburg and Allied positions more anxious. In spring 1637, Matthias Gallus arrived in Saxony with 20,000 men. As the commander of the main imperial army, Gallus had been watching the Rhine throughout 1636 and awaiting the French attack. With the position in northern Germany acute after Wittstock, though, and John George of Saxony trying to remain calm as the apoplectic George William of Brandenburg scurried off to East Prussia, Emperor Ferdinand III recognised that something would have to be done if North Germany was not to be lost to Sweden altogether. In fact, though, Johann Banner's hold over the north in the name of Sweden wasn't as powerful as might have been imagined. He had only 14,000 under his command, and with the approach of a combined imperial Saxon army twice that size, it was clear he'd have to avoid its advance. For the next few months, Banner engaged in an ingenious campaign of cat and mouse as he ditched his baggage train and commandeered its horses to get the edge on the foe. Yet, impressive though his escape over the river Oder to the northeast was, the retreat had cost Banner 4,000 men, and it frustrated the potential that Wittstock had suggested for a Swedish resurgence. This would not come till later. Oxenstierna heard the news of Banner's struggles loud and clear, initially making an effort to negotiate with the Imperials directly in January 1638, but these negotiations came to nothing, and the Imperial agent at Hamburg noted that Oxenstierna continued to stall. The reason for this stalling was that the Swedish Chancellor had come closer to a more concrete arrangement with France. The Treaty of Hamburg was confirmed on the 15th of March 1638. It established a full alliance between Sweden and France that was to last for three years. As per the terms of the alliance, France would supply 400,000 thalers annually. Sweden was confirmed as excluded from the Franco-Spanish War, and Oxenstierna pledged to coordinate diplomacy with the French. Oxenstierna, probably wisely enough, did not trust Cardinal Richelieu, but he did trust in the value of the sudden cash injection, using it to expand Banner's army, based in Stettin, to more than 20,000. So the impact of the cash was such that by the midsummer of 1638, Matthias Gallus was now the outnumbered party. All Gallus could call upon were a few thousand poorly trained Brandenburgers, and the ailing elector George William was more interested in seeing Matthias Gallus secure Pomerania for his own family than help him expel the nearby Swedes. In this 
situation, Johann Banner took the initiative, and as Gallus retreated beyond the River Elbe, he could not have known that he was retreating from the Swedish base for the final time. The Imperials would not get another chance to endanger Sweden's position again, for just as Gallus was repulsed from the north, further to the west along the Rhine, Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar finally came through for France. The years 1637-38 to had contained a great deal of inconsistent campaigning for Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar. As he would not or could not raise more than 9,000 men, the French reduced their subsidy to him, and they also decided to reinforce his army with their own. Closer to home, in Picardy to the northeast, and in Languedoc in the south of France, a Spanish invasion had been beaten back. But Richelieu continued to delegate control of these matters to their provincial governors, which meant that the expense of these operations would have to be borne by the governors as well, rather than the central royal treasury. Any efforts to do more than expel the Spanish from the extreme south of France floundered on the usual problems of supply, apathy and bad generalship. The historian David Parrott, analysing the campaigning year of 1637, provided the following astute observations. The year, 1637, marked a low point in French military activity. It presented the cardinal with the possibility of a war that would not necessarily lead to outright defeat, but would lose all momentum under the impact of supply and financial failures, the reluctance of the generals to risk their reputations and their fortunes, and the practical difficulties involved in any attempt to exploit success in one campaign theatre without excessively weakening all the others. It was this threat of military stagnation, with its consequences both for strategy and for the loss of royal reputation, that drove the ministers to place greater pressure on the individual commanders to undertake more ambitious strategies in subsequent campaigns. Unfortunately, this increased pressure was not matched by any significant improvement in the administrative structures or the resources available for the war effort. So essentially, 1637 produced little of note, and with this, Richelieu had focused on the diplomatic sphere and continued to sponsor encouraging congresses in Lübeck and Hamburg that might grant breakthroughs at the peace table, where the battlefield was less generous. Yet all of these efforts at creating some preliminary peace congress proved to be in vain. The Emperor still hoped to make a separate peace with Sweden. King Philip of Spain still hoped for the Emperor to join him against the Dutch. Axel Oxenstierna didn't wish to show his hand or commit Sweden. All the while, undersupplied and underfunded armies marched and pillaged their way along the Rhineland, one of which was led by Bernard of Saxe-Weimar. Bernard had made little use out of 1637, but did intend to make a greater effort in spring 1638, he found, poised against him, a seriously understrength imperial force, which had seen its regiments peeled away to aid the Saxons in the Middle Rhine, while further up the Rhine, near the border with the Spanish Netherlands, a new invasion by Frederick Henry, aimed at seizing Antwerp, pulled many Spanish units away from the imperial side. These interconnected threats had a serious impact on the imperial capacity to defend its position along the Rhine. Bernhard was thus confronted by garrisons defending several fortresses of strategic importance along the daunting river and its plain. One such fortress, and a place we'll become quite familiar with, was a place called Breisach, and during 1638, Bernhard manoeuvred into a position along the Rhine to besiege it. 
The mission was far from simple, but if he was successful, France would have established a bridgehead on the other side of the Rhine River, and they could use this as a base for further incursions into Germany, threatening Bavaria above all. In early March of 1638, Bernhard defeated the Imperial Army at Rheinfelden, increasing the isolation of Breisach in the process and paving the way for sieges of Breisach's supporting fortresses up and down the Rhine. In mid-June, then, Bernhard finally felt confident to draw his cannon before Breisach. Inside this tough nut of Breisach was Colonel Reinach, a veteran of the Battle of Lutzen from 1632, where poor Gustavus Adolphus had fallen, and an experienced commander of men in his own right. He had 3,000 well-prepared soldiers at his command, complemented by 152 cannons. So if Bernhard wanted Breisach, he'd have to be prepared not only for a lengthy siege, but also to foil the efforts at relief launched by the Imperials over the rest of the year. An interesting point we could make about these operations is the juxtaposition between the importance of what was at stake and the small numbers of men used by either side. At Rheinfelden, Bernhard only had 6,000 men on the battlefield, as did his foe, while even following French reinforcement in the late spring of 1638, Bernhard's army still numbered no more than 12,000. Perhaps both sides had come to accept that difficulties in provision and command recommended the use of smaller forces, but it's more likely that neither side possessed the resources to act in any greater numbers. In the imperial case in particular, Matthias Gallus was attempting to capture Johann Banner's Swedes in Pomerania, while Bernhard lay siege to Breisach. At the diplomatic table, meanwhile, the Treaty of Hamburg was formalised between Sweden and France. Important as Breisach and its command over Alsace was, it seemed as though the rest of the war was passing Bernhard by. If he wanted to confirm the investment that France had placed in him, it was vital that he succeed and seize this bastion for his French masters. Fortunately for Richelieu's nerves, this was done by mid-December, as the shattered imperial garrison was allowed to march out with full honours. To give you an idea of the actual cost for poor old Colonel Reinach who was defending, him and his garrison had been through hell, and their initially healthy 3,000 had been reduced to just 400. The starved garrison were reduced to chewing the hides of horses and cows just to survive. Emperor Ferdinand III would certainly have lamented the loss of Breisach. It represented the first true loss of imperial territory, to a French regime that had spent the previous years invariably buckling under military pressure, and so far as Ferdinand was concerned, feigning an urge for peace. Breisach presented a great opportunity for Richelieu to plan for a more impactful Rhine campaign into the new campaigning year of 1639. But it was also a desperately needed piece of good news for a French population crushed by taxation and driven anxious by the initial setbacks of the war. By late 1638, after not even a full year of rule, Emperor Ferdinand III was beginning to realise precisely how urgently the empire needed peace. Following the spat with Spain over unpaid subsidies and the withdrawal of Spanish auxiliaries from the Lower Rhine to fight the Dutch, it surely appeared to the emperor as though the other branch of the dynasty wasn't pulling its weight or abiding by the terms of previous alliances that had been made. But the Spanish had severe problems of their own, above all in their major war theatre with the Dutch, but also closer to home in Catalonia. 
This northernmost principality of Spain, with its capital of Barcelona, had been a client of the Kingdom of Aragon, and it was difficult even for the medieval Aragonese to bring them to heel. Catalonia, uniquely among the Spanish monarchy that was centred on Castile, had managed to retain its independent culture, and even its language, with some Catalans not even being fluent in Spanish, were even able to understand those Castilian officials who came to rule over their region. The intransigence of the Catalans was especially problematic by the late 1630s because manpower shortages elsewhere in the Iberian Peninsula moved Count Olivares to request more and more men from Castile's neighbours. However, a further dimension to the problem was one of national security. As the border province with France, a Catalan revolt could throw Spain into a crisis and open a back door into the peninsula, which the French could invade from. For so long, it had been assumed that the Catalans would never go that far, but the resilience of the locals to all Castilian demands, be they taxes or the provision of recruits, certainly put Olivares's back against the wall and compelled him to imagine those worst-case scenarios. According to the judgments and figures of the Union of Arms, which had been drawn up in the early 1620s, Catalonia was meant to provide a healthy, regular income to Madrid, but, as we've learned, this income had been calculated in error, and it was based on an inaccurate picture of Catalonia's population. The Catalans thus rarely, if ever, paid Madrid what Madrid insisted they owed, and the recruits that they did levy were often disbanded, following rumours that they would be expected to serve in Germany or elsewhere. Remarkably, some Catalans even compelled other recruits from neighbouring regions of Spain to disband once they moved through their territory. Predictably, Olivares was less than impressed, and in early 1636, he wrote to King Philip IV on the matter, saying, If Barcelona were to behave as it should, the whole province would follow suit, but it attempts to bargain over questions not only of grace, but even of justice, to the detriment of the public welfare and of royal authority, and it is impossible not to add that, unless these vassals recover from their present blindness, it will be necessary to take some terrible steps which your majesty in his mercy has always been anxious to avoid. But the problem with Catalonia only grew worse, and as Olivares' impatience grew, so did the Catalans become more concerned with their alienation from Madrid. In a secret Junta meeting held in August 1636, Olivares confirmed their fears when he expressed the view that if there were anyone who would dare reduce that province without the presence of your majesty, a task which, with your majesty's presence, one hopes to God will be easy, he would deserve the greatest imaginable honours and rewards from your majesty. And really, it raises serious questions of principle to allow this business to drag on. Was Catalonia merely a trouble spot, a blemish on the king's majesty, or was it something far more sinister? Time would in fact reveal that Catalonia was a far greater threat to Madrid than Olivares could have imagined. But throughout the late 1630s, precious little was done to fix the core problems which underpinned the Castilian-Catalan relationship. The Duke of Cordoba, the Spanish viceroy for Catalonia, communicated the problems to Olivares in a meeting held in May 1637, saying, As regards using the Catalans for their own defence, we shall try to do so by the most subtle methods, but I beg your excellency to permit me to tell you that these people are temperamentally so lacking in docility, even when their own welfare is at stake, 
that even when aware of this, they remain suspicious and will take no action until necessity compels. By now, Olivares had had enough. It was time for the Catalans to do their duty, and by hook or by crook, he intended to force them to do so, since they would only act when necessity compels, according to their viceroy, Olivares determined, in the words of the historian J. H. Eliot, to give necessity a helping hand. He would raise an army 15,000 strong, composed of 6,000 Catalans, and this would be sent against the French in Languedoc, the southern region of the French country, which was itself traditionally rebellious and contrarian to the north of France in religion, culture, history and language. Languedoc, in short, was in many ways the Catalonia of France, but in seeking to batter his enemy's troublesome vassal with a troublesome vassal of his own, Olivares made a severe miscalculation. Those 6,000 Catalans would be raised, insisted the Count Duke, on the basis of the proclamation of Princeps Namc, which stated that Catalans must rush to the defence of their king. Interestingly, though, Catalans had read the fine print of this 11th century proclamation, which had as a prerequisite that the king should be in Catalonia if it was to be valid, since King Philip would rather die than be present in Catalonia in summer 1637, Catalans used this loophole to absolve themselves of their supposed duty to defend him. This defeat could not be kept a secret. One Spanish official noted how the demand for 6,000 recruits had been transformed into 6,000 lawsuits, which will last for years while this province looks on and laughs. Olivares seethed in Madrid, aghast at the opportunism and lack of patriotism of the Catalan people, and determined to have his way. What followed was further disaster for Spain, as its anemically provisioned army still lumbered over the Pyrenees and in August 1637 besieged Lucat, a picturesque seaside town on the Mediterranean. There was not a Catalan to be found in this army, yet when Barcelona's council did move to make some show of obedience, the 500 men they raised marched too late, and the French were able to relieve the town. And even while they had marched, those Catalans hadn't distinguished themselves, as one Barcelona commander recorded. They are dissolute men, quite shameless about stealing hens and sheep. It is all wrong that these soldiers, who are natives of the province, should conduct themselves so badly. News of this defeat was received in Madrid in late September 1637 with consternation and even some Catalans began to feel anxious about letting the side down. Interestingly, though, while many citizens proclaimed their intentions to serve the required three-month service for the new campaigning season of 1638, senior Catalan officials objected, consulted the constitutional lawyers who informed them of their rights, and continued to try to dodge Spanish service. Without the senior nobility on side, Madrid could not expect much in the way of help from Catalonia, and any campaigns launched for 1638 seemed to be doomed to failure once more. Disgusted with receiving the bulk of the blame for the recent disappointments, the Spanish viceroy, the Duke of Cordoba we heard from earlier, resigned in late 1637. The question thus remained, who could whip these Catalans into shape in time for a new campaigning season? Or, as some in Madrid feared, was the situation in Catalonia irretrievably lost? As Spanish troops wintered in the truculent principality, 
it was clear that greater tests were still to come. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Meanwhile, the war with the Dutch didn't sit still over 1637-38 while the Spanish grappled with Catalonia and while Olivares planned his strikes against the French. Indeed, as Richelieu understood it, the Spanish-Dutch war served as the ideal foil to Spanish strategic plans because just as a small victory or military initiative was seized in one theatre, resources would have to be diverted to account for a setback in another. This was the case as it happened with the Habsburg position generally, as we saw many imperialist soldiers diverted from the Rhine in spring 1637 to protect Saxony after the Battle of Wittstock in October 1636 destroyed the Saxon imperial position. Perhaps only in North Italy, where French alliances with Savoy and Mantua collapsed, could the Habsburgs have any claim to genuine success in the period. Yet even with the reconquest of the Valtelline passes, the Spanish road was still cut, and Spain was denied a direct land route between either Madrid and Vienna, or Madrid and Brussels. It was to be expected that in both of these theatres, the ability of the Habsburg dynasty to coordinate its campaigns began to decline. And so did the integrity of the Spanish monarchy itself. Not just the Catalans, but also the Portuguese were beginning to get a little bit upset. The Portuguese had been bitter and its nobility resentful at the failure of the Spanish to return Pernambuco, that is Brazil basically, to Portuguese control. Pernambuco was a valuable prize which the Dutch had seized in 1630 and only expanded upon since. By 1638, Olivares was willing to make serious offers of peace to the Dutch if they would only relinquish the region and he promised 5 million ducats if the Dutch committed to hand back Maastricht, Breda and this South American colony. But the Dutch were unmoved. They knew they had the advantage over their old master, and that the resumption of war with France had severely hampered Madrid's ability to project its power. 
not just its power, but also its finances. Spanish monetary aid to Brussels rapidly decreased in the late 1630s as the burdens of war with France increased and the compact within Iberia fractured. To give you an idea, Spain sent nearly 13.5 million florins to Brussels in 1637. This fell to 11 million in 1638 and just short of 9 million in 1639. During the particularly grim year of 1643, Spain could only spare 4.5 million florins for Brussels, while the Dutch continued to run rampant. These facts and figures suggest that, far from holding out on Vienna, Madrid was struggling even to defend and support its own interests in Europe and the New World. The late 1630s must be seen as the culmination of many years of chronic decline in Spanish finance, strength and prestige, aggravated by Dutch ingenuity in the New World and Frederick Henry's successful campaigns in Europe, which had effectively liberated the Dutch Republic from any latent Spanish threat by October 1637, following the fall of Breda. Henceforth, Spain was unable to genuinely threaten Dutch independence, and it became a matter of when, rather than if, Spain would concede defeat. Olivares' multi-pronged campaign against France in 1636 had been bold and creative in theory, but in practice, that grand strategic plan for pushing France out of the war and focusing attention on the Dutch proved to be the final truly promising Spanish initiative of the Thirty Years' War. Indeed, it seemed that the Dutch were as innovative and daring abroad as Frederick Henry was in his siegecraft in the Netherlands. So long as the Dutch usurped Spanish power in Asia, the Caribbean and South America, Madrid was unable to absorb the knock-on effects of such losses. Portugal's nobility had always been an important lobby group, and they were joined by the merchant classes of Lisbon, who had a direct financial interest in the Brazilian sugar industry. With Dutch possession of that industry, much of the sheen of Spanish rule wore off for these Portuguese, and from the mid-1630s, regular petitions from Lisbon to Madrid spoke of the urgent need to take back Pernambuco. It was not from lack of trying, though, that Spain failed in these efforts, but even greater disaster followed in autumn 1639. After seeing his efforts melt into pools of disaster, Olivares resolved to replicate the grand campaign strategy of 1636, but this time at sea, and he directed this campaign solely against the Dutch. On paper, at least, the plan was really quite terrifying. An armada of 80 ships would be sent to destroy the Dutch fleet, thereby endangering the economic lifeblood of the Republic and freeing the supply routes to Brussels. But the promise of success was illusory. The 80 ships were reminiscent of the Spanish Armada because they varied greatly in size and quality, and in late October 1639, the superior Dutch Admiral Martin Tromp outmaneuvered his foe off Dover in the Battle of the Downs. The naval defeat was a bitter one for Olivares. He had spent the majority of 1639 building up the fleet for an attack which he hoped would be the answer to Spain's woes. 1638 saw Frederick Henry repulsed from Antwerp, but there had been no major initiatives launched by either side in the meantime. Similar to the French case, the Dutch-Spanish experience of 1637-38 was a somewhat quiet period after the fall of Breda. But, as Frederick Henry appreciated, continuous triumphs were less important than the retention of the major weapons in his arsenal. 
All he had to do was hold on to Pernambuco in Brazil and maintain a large army in the Netherlands, and the sapping effect this would have on Madrid would eventually tell. The Battle of the Downs vindicated this idea and represented arguably the greatest naval victory of the Dutch Republic. Far more important than this triumph at sea, though, was the succession of disasters that convulsed Spain the following year, because, let's put it this way, if 1639 was the year that Olivares' great plan was destroyed, then 1640 was destined to be the year when the very idea of Spain or the Iberian Union and King Philip IV's regime appeared to be in jeopardy. It's a tremendous story and I hope you guys are enjoying it, but we're going to leave it there for now and come back next time. So, for now, thanks so much to you for listening and for engaging and supporting this show on Patreon. You guys are really fantastic. I appreciate you so much. It's been a wild ride. Things are hopefully going to settle down with the PhD a little bit. I'm going to be releasing some more episodes the next little while. Finally, that 10 favourite guests episode if i can get around to recording it and the same with the future plans for the podcast because in fairness a lot of you guys have been asking what exactly the plan is and i'm sure you've also noticed that the release schedule has been quite erratic so sorry about that sometimes when your brain just runs out of juice and you're stuck looking at national honor all the time it can be very hard to leave aside some time to record but again i really appreciate your support it it means the world to me and i wouldn't be able to keep doing the phd certainly and not the podcast at all if i didn't have your continued support so thanks again so much for that and i hope to see you next time but in the meantime take care and i'll be seeing you all soon Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.